0: How many of you have ever tried to do a 500 or 1,000-piece puzzle? What was your strategy? Did you do the edges first? Yeah? That really is a good way to approach a puzzle, getting that frame figured out so that you know where all those random pieces in the middle are supposed to go. Or, or, Or how about this? I'm going to put a paragraph up. We'll read it, see if we can make sense and solve it. Uh, a, A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. One needs lots of room, and if there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock? will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance." Pretty random, right? Somewhat meaningless. What is this paragraph about? But if I give you a frame for this paragraph, a way to look at it, I could do it in a word. Kite. And every, ah, (laughs) everything makes sense. Today, as we go through the life of Moses, we actually have two words, that once you understand them and see them, it not only helps you understand the whole story of the Bible, especially all those random parts in the middle, but even more, it gives you a frame to look at life. Through the Passover, the first frame, we really get to see who God is. And we'll see how the Passover is all through the Bible. And then the second word, Exodus. Through the Exodus and that frame, we get to see who we are and how God has been working with his people to help us Exodus, if you will, throughout the entire Bible. So let's look at these two events. Let's see who God is. Let's see who we are. Let's continue in the life of Moses. As Billy said, the life of Moses is really not much about his life. It's really about his experience with God and we get to walk with him as he encounters God. And last week, we had uh, the Pharaoh, the leader of the most powerful uh, civilization in the entire world at the time, encounter God. And he asked God, or he asked Moses about God, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then we heard the Lord answer that question with Pharaoh, with, with all of, of the plagues. Now, uh, what's interesting is that this um, Passover, this, this lamb, which was the protection from the plagues, is the centerpiece of Hebrew worship and would become, through Jesus, the centerpiece of Christian worship. And so we note that at the very center of everything we do, It's a bloody death of a helpless victim. Let's look at the uh, passages around the Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And then jumping down to a few more verses. So take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a plant with a a fluffy top. This is like a paintbrush. Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. What's happening here in Egypt is that their their wickedness throwing babies into the Nile, oppressing large groups of people, ignoring the image of God. It's reached Nazi proportions, and God's had enough. And instead of waiting, as he does with most nations, to judge their sins on the day of the Lord at the end of time, He lets judgment fall on Egypt now by coming after the firstborn. Now, in a few moments, we're going to talk about the significance of the firstborn and what that means. But what I want to again point out is that what protects the people of Israel from the destroyer, the one who's going to knock the most powerful nation in the world to its knees, is fluffy and muffy, the lambs, the most mild, meek creature in the animal world. You are to kill it, take its blood, put it on the door frames, eat it, and wait till morning, and then walk out under the blood. I first want to see how this lamb and the blood goes through all Scripture. So we go back to Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have decided that God is not good or at least good enough, they take life into their own hands and uh, everything falls when they rebel. Everything breaks and uh, including themselves and their own insides, because all of a sudden they feel shame. They feel guilt. They start looking everywhere else to, to get the verdicts on who they are, but they've turned away from God. They feel shame. In fact, what they do is sew fig leaves together to cover themselves in God's presence. So God has a conversation with them. And he first outlines what life in this broken world is going to be. But then at the very end of that conversation, in verse 21, we read, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Hebrews commenting on this in the New Testament said, For without the shedding of blood, there is no covering. So the earliest echoes of the blood of of a lamb, of a covering from blood, is in the very earliest moments of a fallen world. And then we go to Genesis 22, uh, again, another difficult passage in the Bible, one that you'd never see on a Hallmark card. God s- just seems to have trouble fitting into Hallmark cards. Um, God asked Abraham to go and sacrifice, to give up his, his only, uh, his son, his, his son of the promise, his beloved Isaac, And um, again, we need to understand this story in light of what the firstborn, and God is asking for the firstborn. If God would have asked Abraham to kill Sarah, Abraham would have thought God had a demon and would have never done that. It's all about what the firstborn means in that story as to why Abraham was even willing. And by the way, we also know it's never going to happen. God is testing Abraham, we're told in the first verse we also know exactly what Abraham is thinking in this story. Hebrews tells us that he trusted God so much that he knew if even if he sacrificed Isaac to God that God would raise Isaac back to life and keep his promise. All of this surrounding the story. But I think what I want to point out in the story for our purposes this morning is what you have here is a paradigm, is a, a model of God's approach with his people that he, as the father, is going to be willing to sacrifice his beloved to help him up a hill and be laid on top of the wood. And then, after that, we come to the Exodus passage, our passage this morning. And I just briefly want to mention two things about the Exodus, or the, um, I'm sorry, the uh, Passover in Exodus. First, there is this idea of substitution. Forgive the bluntness of my language, But when the destroyer comes, every house in Egypt either has a dead lamb or a dead son. And if you don't have a dead son, it's because the dead lamb died for your family, in your place, for your sins. The second thing, not only the substitution, but now I wanna talk a little bit about the firstborn. I think what's troublesome in the passage is why does God kill the firstborn? What is it with the firstborn? Here you need to take your 21st century modern Western American hats off because we live in a culture of radical individualism, and you need to go back to the culture of their day and enter a radical world of family-driven culture, where the only thing that mattered for you was the success, the reputation, and the, uh, the uh, uh, endurance of your family. And in the ancient world, the way your family would survive was that the firstborn got everything. In the ancient world, inheritances were not divided up between the other sons or the other daughters. The firstborn got everything in the family. Why? Because to pass from generation to generation in an agrarian culture, you kept resources together. You kept everything collected. And the firstborn managed it, and he would pass it on to the next firstborn in the next generation. That is how the ancient family thought and worked If you wanted to read more of this, by the way, there's a great book out written by a professor of Jewish studies at Harvard University, John Levinson. It's called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved. I think we have, this helped me more than anything else understand what's going on in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac, as well as understanding why God comes after the firstborn. He comes after the firstborn in Egypt for two reasons. Think about this. So This rocks my world a little bit. The first reason is because the firstborn represented the entire family. God is asking every family to account in Egypt for the way they've been living. The firstborn represents everyone. God comes after the firstborn because every family owed a debt to God for the way they've been living, and the way to call in that debt in that culture was to go after the firstborn. The second reason, and and, and go with me here if you would, I think this is in some ways a severe mercy. God would have been in the right to totally kill every person in Egypt for the way they've been living, the values that they've endorsed. Every person. Instead, he goes after the first person, firstborn to satisfy his justice, to hold every person accountable, but to let, and in, and in mercy, let Egypt survive as a nation. He could have killed them all. They deserved it. So you have the, the Passover with God coming for the firstborn to hold the entire nation accountable. him and then we see this 1400 years further into the future at the passover meal now there were two shocking things about the passover meal that jesus led the first is this jesus acting as the presider no doubt having exodus 12 and 13 memorized as every rabbi would have in that day he's walking them through all the elements of the passover meal when he held up the bread of affliction Normally, the presider would say something like this. This is the bread of Israel's affliction. Our ancients suffered so that we could be free. But when Jesus, as presider, held up the bread, do you remember what he said? This bread represents my broken body. And in that statement, saying that my suffering now, my suffering... Not the ancient, my suffering is your liberation. And then he held up the cup and the same phenomenon there that this, my blood is now the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins. That would have been the first shocking thing is Jesus himself becoming the elements. And then the the other shocking thing, and I have to confess to you, I had never realized until reading and researching this week, I'd never put this really together. 29 years old and I'm still learning things. The other shocking thing about the Passover table, that Jesus, there's no mention of a lamb. What, would a, what kind of Passover was this? You had the bread, you had the cup, but there was no lamb. And the reason that the lamb is not on the table is because the lamb is at the table. This was the night of nights, the central night in the history of the world when we would begin to understand that the one who would save history would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Indeed, now we come to the very end of the story. Again, seeing this frame the whole story, this idea of the Passover Lamb. In Revelation, we'll just put the words, I'm not going to read it, but just tell it. Revelation, John hears... uh, these words about who can open the scrolls and tell us how history's gonna end, how the world's gonna end, who has the authority, who has the power, and they weep because there's no one until one of the elders says, look, uh, and, and John is listening to the elders, and the elder says, there's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and it's very interesting the contrast here between hearing and seeing. John hears the elders say, it's the lion, The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has the power and the authority to take history to its intended end. But when John looks, what does he see? The lamb of God is on the throne with its throat slit and blood gushing. At the end of it all, it's a lamb on the throne, ruling the world and bringing it to its intended purposes. Christianity is this huge paradox that the world will be conquered not by force, but by death. Not by violence, but by self-sacrifice. And there you have the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Before we spend some time just sitting in that and reflecting with a prayer, I just want to quickly mention some more objectives, uh, uh, objections that people might have to that. First, you know, if you understand that what saves the world, indeed what saves you and I as individuals, is the bloody death of a helpless victim. The first pushback you might have in that is, wait a minute, if someone had to die for me, you're saying I'm not a good person? I'm not saying it. God says there is none righteous no not one every family every person owes a debt of sin to God Well I'm I have issues with that What's that saying about me Well can I go with you just for a a, a short walk on that subject. Let's, let's take God out of it. Let's be postmodern. Let's take moral absolutes out of it. Let's just say as we live that, um, you know, maybe we do things that might be called debt. So let's do this. Let's do this, okay? Let's put something around your neck. That's a recording device. And let's have you wear it for a year. And that recording device will go on Every time you say or think to yourself, that person should do that, or that person shouldn't do that. And you have that on when you're driving, <laughs> you, you have that on when you're comparing yourself to other people. You have that on at work. You have that on when you're watching television. You, you have that on, and it only comes on when you say that person should do that or that person shouldn't do that. First of all, how often do you think that thing would go off? Second of all, where does that idea of should come from? And last of all, do you think you could even live up to your shoulds. We owe a debt. To whatever God you do or don't believe in, to whatever moral values there are in the culture, we live with shoulds and should nots, and there's a debt. Think on this. And then, it's not only that, that confers to everyone, yeah, everyone, but Second objection I hear is, well, why can't God, when he looks at our debts and our shoulds and our should not, why can't he just say, oh, no big deal. Let's get over it. Let's move on. Pretend it didn't happen. Let's just turn the other way. Why can't he just forgive? Well, let's talk about that for a moment, shall we? The idea of forgiveness is, is even existing because God has created a moral universe when we begin to realize that we not only may have debts to him, but we all may, may have debts to one another. So this whole idea of should and should not and debts, it's everywhere in our lives. In fact, you cannot live without thinking about the idea of debts and forgiveness. Let me illustrate. Someone backs into your mailbox. Who pays? Either the person that backed into your mailbox or you. In property, in the world of property, somebody pays when a debt's been incurred. How about in the world of criminal justice? Who pays when there's been a wrong? Well, either the victim pays or the criminal pays, or in some cases, the society pays. But somebody pays. But let's bring it down real personal here. How about in our interactions with each other and debts with each other, how about when someone hurts you with their words, says something to you that really hurts you? Somebody pays. Either the person pays. Well, how does that person pay who said the words? Well, you make them pay. You shun them. You're angry with them. You, 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 you slice out their reputation. You make them pay. Or if they don't pay... You pay. I mean, hopefully in all this, there's some confession and forgiveness, but somebody pays. And well, how would you pay? Well, you would pay by not slicing up their reputation, by not shunning them, by trying to work it out, by not, you know, taking your anger out on them. Somebody pays we live in a moral universe where when there's wrongs and debts somebody pays behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world god paid who is god who is this god that we can have relationship with him he pays the bloody death of a helpless victim That's what we're going to commemorate at the end of our service. That's where right now all of our, this train is moving. This sermon train is going to the Lord's Supper where we're going to sit and reflect and understand and pray Lord, thank you for paying my debts so that I could have relationship with you and with others. There's the Passover. Do you see it? It's all through the scriptures. It's All the story, it's what life means. It is who God is. By the way, you realize, right? You become whom you worship. You become whom you worship. And if you worship this God, this Lamb of God, that gospel begins to sit deeper and more deep within your heart as well so the Passover tells us who God is it's all through the story but the Exodus tells us who we are and what God's been doing throughout this whole story just to recap the Exodus real quickly the Egyptians seem to come to their senses in fact I love the language that they use They said what have we done we've lost their services how nice to put it They've lost their slave labor and their economy's crashing. So they start off after Israel to get them back. And when Israel hears the hoof beats, they panic. They begin, and I love the way they they talk to Moses, right? One of the most sarcastic questions in the entire Bible. Are there no graveyards in Egypt that you bring us out to the desert to die? And then they say, what's really interesting here, then they say, you know, you didn't listen to us, Moses, in Egypt. We were saying, leave us alone. Let us serve Egypt. You go back, you read Exodus 4. They never said that. As soon as Moses showed them the signs, they said, we're in. Get us out of here. They're delusional about the past. Their fear, the stress. Hearing the hoofbeats has made them delusional, not only about the past, but think about this. They're probably within 24 hours of seeing weeks' worth of the 11 greatest signs in the history of the world. And already they're saying, well, we better go back now. What is that? Hold on, we'll talk about that in a minute. The story continues. Moses intercedes in one of Moses' finest moments gathers the people, collects them, says, don't be afraid, be still, which some translators say, could be translated, shut up. (laughs) Don't be afraid, shut up, and watch the deliverance of the Lord today. Moses, a moment would raise his staff, the sea would part, the east wind, blow a hole right through the sea of reeds, Who knows how many people, some say 600,000 men, some say 20, 30,000. They all get through. And the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, God's presence, goes behind Israel and in front of Egypt. The Lord is fighting. Exodus 15 in the great song, the Lord is the warrior. He's doing the fighting. And they all pass through. And then when Egypt pursues them in, Moses waves his staff again. The wind leaves and There is not one survivor of the army of the greatest military power the world had ever seen. Now, quickly, this is all through scripture. In Matthew chapter two, you remember to flee from Herod, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee into Egypt and live as immigrants. And then they come back from Egypt and it's out of Egypt have I called my son. Jesus is totally identifying with the the Israelites. We we go on to um, Luke chapter nine in the great transfiguration moment when the glory of Jesus is unveiled. Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking about the departure at Jerusalem. The Greek word for departure is exodus. And what's going to happen at at, at Jerusalem is Jesus is going to provide the exodus. The escape. And you go on to chapter five. Jesus used Exodus language in his preaching in John five. When he says, uh, I'm sorry, do we have John five? There we go. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has, here it is, crossed over from death to life. Jesus using the Exodus as a metaphor for what it means to be saved. What it means to be saved is someone believes in Jesus and they cross over from death to life. And then, I won't read 1 Corinthians 10, but it's there, Paul using the Exodus language as a metaphor, but basically saying all that happened there in the uh, Exodus and, this, and the wilderness was Jesus at work. He was the rock that was leading Exodus through all of this time. So that's the story. You see the language all through. But what does it mean? Quickly, what does it mean to be saved? If the Exodus is about us and who we are, Exodus is about a way of escape, passing from death to life, what does it mean to be saved? Well, it means first to be delivered from bondage by a decisive act of God. That's what it means to be saved, that's what the exodus means, bondage. So back to that moment when Israel was like giving it to Moses and saying, what, I mean, there's no graveyards in Egypt and, and all this, it's almost as if, I mean, objectively, Israel has been delivered from Egypt and they're no longer slaves, objectively. But inside, they're still acting like slaves, right? When it gets tough, well, we gotta take things into our own hands, put something at the center of our lives, which gives us meaning, push God to the side, and let's go. Let's go back to Egypt. You say, yeah, that, boy, Israel. I guess, you know, you can take the person out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of the person. And they're still thinking like slaves. But let me just say something. Do you ever feel slavery? Do you ever feel you're enslaved? to something, I would argue, I guess I am arguing, that whenever you put anything else at the center of your life besides God, that you have entered slavery, because that person cannot give you, that thing cannot give you what you really need. Let's just walk through this idea of internal slavery for a moment, enslavement. First, whatever you put there to give your life significance, um, we all do it. We all have to find something in life that gives us meaning and significance and value, a verdict on our life that we want. You know, like Rocky Balboa in the Rocky movies? I gotta go the distance. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Every day we are sparring with encroaching bumness, (laughs) trying to give our lives the verdicts we need, the meaning we want. And whatever you put, In that place of giving you significance and meaning, you're enslaved to it. It will control your life. You will give your time, your money, your thought world. It will control your life. You don't believe me? Believe a Nobel laureate, Bob Dylan. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may uh, be... The heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or maybe the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. And then, finally, we all seek significance in life. We all give that place in life to others, and we will serve whatever that is. And then the last thing is, once you keep asking it to fill your life with meaning and meaning, and it can't be God to you, it can't die for you, it can't pay your debts for you, it will continue to scream in your ear, serve me or die. It will bring disintegration to your life. So, so let me illustrate in you know, a culture like ours how this works a little bit. This, we live in a culture, let's, let's face this, where we worship our children. We, when we want the verdicts that we need, and by the way, I, I have lived this for many days of my life and still struggle with it, but there are those certain verdicts I want in life, and one of them is I want to be viewed as a good father, I want you to look at me and say, Larry, he's, he's figured out how to raise kids. Look at his kids. He's a good dad. And I want to draw self-esteem from that, and I just want a good verdict from you on that. And some days, that has God, whoosh, dad. So let's walk through. Let's, let's recap, shall we? How that's worked out for me. Number one. You realize, right, you only get these kids for 18 to 25, hopefully, years. (laughs) And then they are gone. Yeah, did I hear someone cheer? Um, (laughs) Gone, and if you have not taken care of your marriage not worked in your career, you've sacrificed other things so that you could be the dad and get the verdict you want, it's gonna hurt when they go. I mean, it's gonna crush you more than it should. Second thing, when you parent like that, when you get all of your self-esteem from your kids and through your kids and by people seeing you as a good parent you're going to crush your kids with unrealistic expectations. You're going to live your life through them. You're going to try to get things from them that no kid should ever be asked to give their parent. And then thirdly, and most importantly, when you've put your kids as your God and you've lived for them, what happens when one of them goes off the rails? Your life will disintegrate. You, you can't take it. Not only because people say, oh, you know, look at, one of, look at what his kid's doing, but even more, I mean, it will crush you. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that's not hard. I'm not saying that we're only as happy as our least happy kid. All of that's true. I mean, and all of that, th- this should be one of the priorities of our life. And yeah, we gotta show up. I mean, we have to be good parents but we don't have to be idol worshipers with our parenting. When our kid goes off the rail, you're still a good parent. In fact, in some ways, the way you engage them and be in Luke 15 and be like the father welcoming the prodigal home, makes you even a better parent and teaches you about parenting. We're all enslaved to something. But through a great rescue act of God, we can be free. I love how the, the focus of the Exodus passage is how God is fighting for his people. God, through his, the wind and the Exodus, God, through Jesus sending his son, that we believe in him, we've crossed from death to life. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that we have a new identity. It means we've crossed over from death to life, from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from out of the family to in the family, to born, to born again, to under God's wrath, to declared righteous. Being a Christian means we've crossed over. We have a new identity. And it's nothing we can do on our own. We can't contribute to it. We can't make it happen ourselves. God does it. God, Jesus Christ, is the exodus. And he gives us this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher in Wales, used to discern a person's spiritual condition and whether or not they were really a Christian with this question, are you a Christian? And from their answer, he could navigate really what they were counting on to save them. Because some people would say, well, I'm trying. Or "Well, I go to church? Or, well, I hope so. And he would begin to understand, well, they probably don't know the gospel yet. They are not there. Because the answer to that question, are you a Christian, is, well, yes, because of what Jesus has done for me. Christianity is not spelled D-O. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. What Christ has done. That when we believe in him, we've crossed over from death to life. Now, and I want to push it even further. Many of us wrestle with doubts. I wrestle with doubts. What's interesting to me is thinking, imagine the scripture this week. Wouldn't it have been interesting to be in the Exodus, right? To do the ocean journey thing. I'm sure there were people walking in that sand with the walls of water saying, yeah, take that, Egypt. God's a warrior. We're gonna win. Take that. Nemo, hi. you walking through Great confidence. Don't you think there were others walking through and dry ground saying, we're gonna die. We're gonna die. We're gonna die. And the point is that all of them got through. Why? Because your salvation does not depend on the quality of your faith. Your salvation depends on the strength of the object of your faith he has done it, he has accomplished it, and your life is hidden with Christ. So as the communion servers get ready, and we now come to Passover, and celebrate our exodus, let me give you some ideas to think about during the Lord's Supper. Colossians 3, Paul says, as a result of Jesus being our lamb, who takes away the sin of the world, and helping us through faith cross over into new life, that our lives are hidden with Christ. So let me ask you, real personally, what's keeping you up at night? Is it your job? Work is good and it's a big part of our lives and I understand the anxiety, but one of the things we need to do, the Puritans taught us this, is to preach the gospel to ourselves, What does that mean? Your life is hidden in Christ. So you need to, right now, before you come to the table, turn to your job and say, Job, you are not my joy. Christ is my joy. Some of us are struggling with our marriage and our family relationships. You need to turn to those relationships and say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. And some of us in this room, I'm sure the anxiety is about our bodies with disease, getting older. Our health is suffering. You need to turn to your body and say, you are not my peace. Christ is my peace, my hope. None of those other things, work, family, or health, died for you. Christ died for you. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Tell everything else in your life that, and let's come celebrate the Lamb of God. So, servers would come. Here are the words of institution that call us to the table. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. He said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. In the same way, after the, cup, after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup represents my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. All who love Christ and proclaim him as Lord and Savior are welcome to this table, whether you've done that for a long time or you want to do it for the first time. Come, be with Christ, hidden with Christ at his table. Come and station, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. You can take it anywhere in the room to be with Christ. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.